Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with autistic parent, teacher, and writer, Christopher Wyatt. He is an autistic self-advocate and father of two neurodiverse daughters. He earned a doctorate while researching online education for students with autism spectrum disorders. His experiences living with physical and neurological differences shape his parenting. He consults with schools, businesses, and nonprofit organizations on issues of autism, neurodiversity, and active inclusion. Enjoy this interview. Good. Hey, thanks for taking a minute out. Talk to me. I appreciate it. Oh, definitely not a problem. Before we get into your life and, and what you do, you know, as a you know as a parent, a teacher, and a writer, I want to know how you survived COVID. It was quite a time, um, that, you know, pretty much two years. How did you survive that time, and how did it change you now that we're emerging out of it? In many ways, our lives haven't changed much. My wife was already telecommuting before COVID struck, and I was teaching online courses uh, for a university that was in South Carolina. So I was teaching remotely, and she was and and continues to uh, perform her job remotely. So we were already telecommuting. Probably the biggest change has been with the the children. When we settled into the COVID lockdowns, that, of course, took away their extracurricular activities, their involvement in youth sports, their involvement in Girl Scouts directly. Uh, All those meetings went virtual. So for us, it wasn't about our lives as parents. It was about what what we could do with and for the children suddenly came to just a screeching halt. And that's only now starting to get back to normal, and even then I would say it's it's not fully returned to normal so talk to me a little bit about so are how many so how many children you have and and is there one that you have that's autistic so we have two daughters they are um, they are fourteen months apart, so you know they are they're very close in in needs and stuff and um but one is in fifth grade. The fifth grader is diagnosed as autistic. They also have other diagnoses, including PTSD, trauma, childhood neglect. Uh, it gets It's quite a lengthy list, unfortunately, for both of them. We were foster parents. We were their first and only foster placement and then adopted. Uh, but they were in the foster system with us for four years. Um, so from that aspect, we knew that they were coming from a challenging background, and we knew that, that there were going to be differences that they experienced. So the oldest does have that autism diagnosis um, that it is, it's very obvious to listen to her speak. She has the flat affect. She struggles socially. And yet she was also one of only two students in her class to make a honor roll. So she has that stereotypical high-functioning autism, as they used to call it. Really, it's just you know, part of the autism spectrum, but she is definitely a, a very stereotypical of that, very high achiever. She's into robotics, chess, computers, but at the same time incredibly social, um, socially awkward. And so for her, COVID was almost a relief the idea that she didn't have to go to school, didn't have to navigate 
So from her perspective as a, as a parent, she did really well during COVID because it gave her time to just sit and do her homework, and she was very self-motivated. Our second child is in the third grade. She is uh, dyslexic. She has other issues, dysgraphia, dyslexia, the PTSD, the neglect. She has sensory processing issues. So her neurodiversity presents in a different way. She's also very hyperactive and very social. So she has a lot of social needs. For her, the COVID experience was just absolute misery because she couldn't be out. She couldn't be about. There there were all of these limitations on what she could do that were just just so frustrating for her. They were they were things she just could not understand and and now that she's back to in person Girl Scouts, going to parks, getting to go to the YMCA, if for her this has been an entire um I would say it it's it's been torture for those few years and now this this new freedom has been liberating and it's bringing her slowly back to her normal happy self. You know, I have, my son is on the autism spectrum. He's 17 and specifically and technically he has a long arm on his 15th chromosome, which leads to developmental delays. So I've been in the special needs world for quite a time now. And uh, I remember hearing rumors and murmurs that there was going to be a possible shutdown. And I just didn't know what I was going to do because Miles is such a social creature. His two favorite things are major league baseball and school. And that was March and it was all going to go away. So, um, I can understand, um, you know, what that would be like to have that kind of panic to cut all of those social things off. So I think there's probably a part of us all right now with everything coming back that, you know, we've been so close to this. It's probably like PTSD for us to like realize that things are returning. Well, you know, and when you're looking at special needs parenting, we say it, it's a cliche. Every child is different for us. You know, obviously the the one we call Lee in the podcast and blog that I do, um, for Lee, this was a relief. It was two and a half years of, thank goodness, I don't have to go socialize. I don't have to go do anything. You know, she has, as I said, a very long list of, of diagnoses, and she is a very high achiever. So by removing the social anxiety and the social interactions, she was free to concentrate on her, her academics, her reading, her love for books and art, music by herself. So those things were very good for her in that sense. But at the same time, we had the normal concerns of any special needs parent that she's not getting the social practice. She wasn't getting integrated into a classroom. So while she enjoyed the lockdown, I was constantly worried by the long-term effects of that. For the child we call Anne, uh, so Anne is, um, as I said, very social. She has that ADHD. She has to be moving about or she can't get the energy out. Plus, she has the dyslexia and the dysgraphia and the sensory processing. She needs those supports. All of those supports for the last two years, two and a half years, went away because there was no in-person well, there simply were no in-person in uh, therapeutic approaches available. Everything was telemedicine. Well, that doesn't work when your child is constantly in motion. <laughs> so, yeah. So for her, the two and a half years were the exact opposite. So 
Well, Lee was like, yay, I get to stay home. Anne was like, please don't make me stay. I want to go see my friends. What do you mean they're not outside? What do you mean they're not at school? And so for all that time we were explaining to her, they're at home too. (laughs) And so it was very frustrating. Yeah, for sure. So let's kind of get into your life here. And I'm going to take you in front of a bunch of third graders at a career day. And one of those children is going to look up at you and say, what do you do for a living? How are you going to answer them? I would say that I study how people communicate and how the the way they communicate influences our choices. So if you're in third grade, I need to think about how I ask you to do something. If I want you to do it, how can I most effectively ask you to do what I would like you to do? And when you say that you you study that field of, uh, in my case, it's it's often lumped in with behavioral economics, decision science, data science. For a third grader or a fourth grader, even some adults, uh, the first question that comes up is, so wait, so you try to make us do things we might not want to do? Yes. <laughs> that really does sum it up. Uh, you know, whether it's looking at the rhetoric of, Uh, economics or the rhetoric of politics, what I do is I try to figure out how do we get people to make uh, better decisions if if I want to look at it that way. No, obviously we could always argue what is better. We can always argue about what is a best decision, but for, uh, and and I think that uh, for people like myself, you have to have also an ethical chart of what will I help someone market or what will I help uh, an organization with in terms of educating the public? What what causes do I want to get involved in? Because when you do specialize in persuasion and you have a PhD that says rhetoric, the first people uh, say is, oh, that's all rhetorical. It's all just misinformation or it's this Um, like I said, leading people to do things they don't want to do. and That's not what I really do as a writer. I I ask myself, what would I like people to do? What groups do I know that are trying to get those things done? And how can I work with those groups? So in the case of uh, children, I might be thinking about something they could relate to. Animals, how can we get people to make better choices about getting their animals spayed and neutered? How can we make people uh, more aware of the consequences of owning too many pets? How can we make them aware of the dangers of adopting just during COVID? So, you know, my wife and I, one of the things we have worked with are animal rescues. And because that's an easy thing to explain to people is how do you educate the public to make good decisions? Pet ownership's an easy one to kind of explain. You know, obviously, my, my my serious work is more complex because you're dealing about politics, you're dealing about uh, public policy, especially in special education. Um, my, I, I would say my passion would be art and music in the schools and special education. And unfortunately, as, as most artists know, those of us who love music, we love creative endeavors. My personal uh, interests are music and photography. And, of course, those are the first things our schools cut. They're the first things that a community school board will say, gee, we can cut the, we can cut the art program or we can cut this. So then I'm starting to think, how can I persuade people of the value of music or of the value of visual arts or performing arts? 
And again, I pick and choose. I, there are some causes that if someone came to me and said, as a writer, as someone who specializes in rhetoric and media, would you work on this particular cause? And, and there are times my answer has to be no. That is not something I, I agree with, and I don't really want to be influencing what I consider to be poor decisions. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I knew by I knew by first grade I was going to be a writer of some kind. I I have always, um, I've always been compelled to write, and that's a real struggle because I have dyslexia and I don't read well. So my wife jokes about it, but I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I I grew up making weekly trips to our little local library in a very small rural community, and. Those weekly trips to the library were important to me throughout summers. My grandparents, uh, my grandmother and aunt were farm workers in the citrus fields of California, and yet they would still take parts of their checks and they subscribed to like the Funkin' Wagnalls Children's Encyclopedia. So every week or two I would get a new part of the encyclopedia. I just knew that I wanted to, I wanted to write, and I I really wanted to write on issues of technology and science, so I wanted to combine my my passions for science and knowledge with writing, and and so that's sort of the path I took as a professor. Even um, most of the classes I teach are in communications and business communications. It's it's something where it's I think that. It's rare when a child knows really what they want to do, and I see that in my my oldest. Like I said, she's in fifth grade. She has wanted since she has been, oh gosh, three years old, she has told us she's going to work with animals. And she has her Texas A&M vet science shirt. She knows she's going to be a vet or a zoologist, and she has a path. And I don't think anything's going to dissuade her. I think in 10 years she's still going to want to be a vet. So what was the first thing that you wrote that you really loved, whether it was published or you just felt inside that you really hit a mark and, and this was it? Oh, gosh. I remember when I was in fifth grade writing and sixth grade writing plays that the class performed and with puppets and knowing that there is something about when you write for performance or you write something that other people can see and experience with you it's from that moment from the, the moment that the the fifth and sixth grade teachers said well hey why don't you convert this into a play for class that's when i knew i was hooked because there's there's just something magical about having everyone responding to the words you wrote give me kind of a, a, an idea of every day you wake up and you look at your day what is it that motivates you? What what makes you tick? First and foremost, my daughters. Really getting up and seeing how I'm going to organize their days and do things with them. So sharing my love for writing, my love for music with them, sharing my passion for science and knowledge with them. That's really it. I it was very difficult during COVID and before to be teaching only online. I really miss interacting with, with other people and saying, look how exciting this can be. Look how exciting writing can be. Look how exciting uh, music and the arts can be. And then part of that is 
the reason I'm passionate about it is because it is done so poorly in our schools. I meet far too many people who say, I hate writing. I hated my music class. I hated my art class. And it just breaks my heart to hear that, especially when individuals who are different, neurodiverse in any way, Art and writing, creating things can become such an important outlet that when we have turned them into drudgery and we have made them miserable experiences for students, we've killed so much passion that it it just breaks my heart that we teach things in ways that make people never want to do them again after they get out of school. Have you seen yourself now that we're kind of opening up and COVID slowing down, have you seen your work and what you want to do with your life accelerate at all? Unfortunately not. I think that we are, as I said, we we are still somewhat in a lockdown mode uh, in recovery here. Just when we thought things were getting back to normal, our local school got hit by who knows what. They, they're they unsure. And so there was a day that uh, the oldest did go back to, to campus, and there were like 14 fifth graders present out of, oh gosh, there's four classes of 25. So out of 100, they had maybe 14 present. Uh, the teachers, they're in and out constantly with who knows what's going on. Um, I know that RSV has hit, uh, which is a respiratory infection, has hit the Austin area here in central Texas pretty hard. So the hospitals are full again. So I wish I could say it's normal, but if you're a parent of a young child, it's it's not normal yet. Everyone said, oh, well, when you go back, people will get sick. I don't think we anticipated just how how bad it would be when people went back into classrooms and how severe the, the shortages of both students, teachers, and and other support people would become as everything hit from the flu to RSV to who knows what. It's been strange still. I, I'm waiting for normal. <laughs> I'm eagerly yeah. anticipating normal. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree. Um, so let me ask you this. You know, when you look back on your life, let's say you have a dream tonight. You run into yourself when you're in your 20s. And you could give your young version a piece of advice based on the wisdom that you've accumulated throughout your life up to this point. What would you tell your young version? I'd have probably three things I would definitely tell myself. One is uh, don't stop playing music just because you don't like high school band. You know, stay with the music. And that's something that, uh, again, it was how it was taught was just just crushing. Also, in college, I found myself unable to complete computer science courses because I was just the way it was taught and I was bored stiff. Again, I would would say stay with the, the computers and the music. And the third thing is try to be more social, try to connect more with uh, groups that will help you later professionally. And and that, again, COVID has put that back on hold. But one of the things I now recognize as, that I did poorly as a student, in uh, even in college and graduate school, was I didn't get involved in the social networking. So those peers who have um, had the more – public, more successful careers in academia, research, etc., are the ones who developed and nurtured those social networks that, for those of us who are neurodiverse, it's a real challenge. And I, I do wish I had figured out how to force myself to be more social, 
which is why it concerns me about my, my oldest daughter. So what's been one of the best fan letters or responses you've either gotten from your writing or from your work you've done? Oh, from the writing, I would say that's where things come in. I do um, – so my writing, I, I continue to be a produced playwright. I, I had uh, a year where I had, gosh, I want to say four or five productions going on at once uh, on the East Coast. That, to me, was uh, really exhilarating to be going and watching that. And the thing that, that most affected me was when people would see one of the – the productions and say this felt like I was watching my life or this felt like we were watching our experiences and I worked on uh, some musicals where I scored I did the the lyrics uh, worked with a composer and music has a way when you put words and music together it it can move an audience and the audience watching them say, you know, I broke down in tears. This really hit home. When you experience that as an artist, I don't think there's anything quite like it. And it doesn't even matter if they know it was your work or they just know it was a work they enjoyed. And you happen to be sitting there in, in the back of the theater. I think the highest praise was from my wife. She went to a, a performance of a, a piece I did called the gospel singer which is about a gay gospel singer who is in the closet. And it's it's a stage play based on um, a series of real events. And I got to interview the people and I created the, the stage production. And I, uh, my wife, when, we, when she got home after going to see it with one of her friends, said, wow, I didn't know you could write that well. You know, we, we had been together <laughs> as a couple for like 30 years. And, you know, 30 years, and then she goes to see that, and she she came home and she said, wow, I didn't know that's what you did. Wow. That's really the highest praise is when someone is just taken aback and like, wow, wait, <laughs> those were the words I read on the page for you and edited for you, but you know, once I, I see it and experience like, wow, that's that's different. Yeah. So everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends you know, uh, your readers, those that you work with, but ultimately you live your life. You have a perception of who you are. Who do you think you are? I, I would hope that I, I'm, I'm dad. That's, that's really, it really comes down to that. I, I think one of the highlights of, of the last week or two, uh, you do a, you mentioned your, your podcast is about uh, music sometimes, jazz, fusion. Yeah. So yes. this week, uh, my my oldest uh, took her to her standard music lesson. We go to um, we go to School of Rock in Round Rock, Texas, and the owner Bobby was able to bring in some of the local performers who hit who hit often, just as part of their touring. And uh, my daughter ended up having her music lesson this week for ninety minutes with Doug Wimbish of Living Color. And I absolutely love Cult of Personality. I'm a real 80s and 90s. That that whole pop scene was just awesome. And at the end, he came up to me and said, "Wow, you are doing an incredible job, Dad." And it was like, "Whoa, you know, I have someone here who just spent an hour and a half with my autistic daughter, playing guitar with her and and drums and whatever, you know." 
someone I admire telling me, gee, you've done a great job, Dad. It's like, wow, that it doesn't get better than that. Yeah, absolutely. So if it – oh, no, go ahead. Um, for me, you know, as I said, I I stopped following the music side in high school because band was so torturous, well, learn scales, read it this way. And the thing that I like about the Suzuki method or what – School of Rock does is my daughter just plays music and then she'll work on the sheet music and work on those other things but again just like me she her autistic trait she sees it in her mind she hears it she plays it the idea of learning the notes memorizing the keys um, those things are a little foreign to her and they were stumbling her so putting her in putting her in the School of Rock method, where she's able to explore the instrument, and then they go back and say, oh, well, what you were doing is called a chord. This is what the chord sounded like. Now let's give it a name. That approach has worked really well. And I really look at, as I said, how we teach these things. And so I really admire musicians. I wish that I could have been so much better than I than I was. I have a little home studio. We've got the keyboard. We have a, a full drum kit, clarinet, uh, other things. Um, and my passion for music was really stifled by how it was taught in the 70s and 80s. And for me, it's when those people I admire, those musicians, those composers, when they tell me, wow, your daughters are really doing great, You're, you know, we love how you're encouraging them, that to me is high praise because I never want to squelch the passion my daughters have for anything because that, I think, is what too many of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s experienced was a, a an approach to education that just destroyed our, our love for so many things. If anyone wants to know more about you, Christopher, what you do, anything related to your world, where's the best place for them to go? So the blog is the uh, is the autistic me, but it's also on uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Just look for autistic me, and the podcast is called Perspectives um, on Neurodiversity. The podcast is up on Apple, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify, you name it. And again, I do it by because what I want people to know is that neurodiverse individuals, whether it's autism, dyslexia, hype. Um, whatever it happens to be that makes our brains different. So many of us are artists and creators who, who just need a platform. So that's what I want people to know, and that's why I'm out there as, as the autistic me. Beautiful. Christopher, hey, thank you, man. I appreciate you taking time out today. Good luck with everything. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, and music from around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Mm-hmm.